Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Caitlin Curtis. Caitlin is an award-winning author, public speaker, and member of the Potawatomi Nation. She's also the author of the recent book, Living Resistance, an indigenous vision for seeking wholeness every day. You can get connected with Caitlin and her work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. All right, today we have Caitlin Curtis. Uh, Caitlin, I am such a big fan of yours. I've had you on the podcast like what? This is like the third-ish time I would yeah, say I think now. So. It's been it's been a few times, uh, but it's been a while. It's been like a couple years since I last yeah. chatted with you when we chatted about Native. But you've got a brand new book out, and I'm so excited to chat yeah. more about it. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it. But uh, Caitlin, you are an author, and you do so many wonderful things. You're um, you're part of the Potawatomi tribe, uh, and I am just so excited to chat more with you. But who is Caitlin Curtis to Caitlin Curtis, besides being one of my favorite Enneagram 4s? <laughs> Thank you for that. This is such a great question because I was actually just talking to my partner, Travis, about this, um, the difference between Caitlin Curtis and Caitlin B. Curtis, you know, like the difference Ooh. between everyday me and mm-hmm. author me, that we're all the same. <laughs> we're all right. we're all who I am. But there is a, you know, like when I travel to do speaking events or or when there's a there's a performative nature of who I have to be sometimes. And then mm-hmm. there's also just who I am. And so sometimes those feel at war with each other, um, but they're also just, they're all still me. So it's a very interesting thing that I've been thinking about when you are an author who kind of puts your your heart on paper and sends it out mm. to the world for everyone to read. Uh, but at the core of who I am, I would say that I am a childlike, impatient uh, sensitive, <laughs> easily excited human. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I have this kind of tagline, I think I use in the book of, of how I feel that I am, that I say, I hope to be, you know, a fierce truth teller, but also gentle in the ways that I do that. Mm. And that's kind of felt like who I am at, at the core of myself. Um, that those words feel like home to me and, yeah, and I am an Enneagram 4, so all of those things come with constant questions, right? <laughs> An introspection. <laughs> and you could definitely see it in your writing. I, I just like, I, every time I read one of your books, I'm like, yep, this person's an Enneagram 4. <laughs> just the way you word things, it's just, it's so, it's so Enneagram 4-like to me. <laughs> Isn't that funny how you like can recognize that in other people? Well, it takes an Enneagram 4 to know an Enneagram That's 4. That's true. And that unfortunately, true. being an Enneagram 4 myself, I can just spot those other Enneagram 4s out pretty quickly. <laughs> it's so funny. 
Yeah. Well, let's talk about the new book called Living Resistance. Uh, and the subtitle is An Indigenous Vision for Seeking Wholeness Every Day. I feel like every time I chat with you, I'm like, this is the best book Caitlin Curtis has ever written. And I think this is true again. I think it's the best book that you've ever written. It's incredible. Uh, so let's chat a little bit more about it. Again, this is your, I think, third yeah. or fourth published book now. My third. Um, and I'm sure you learn something new about yourself every time that you write a book. But was was there anything in particular that you learned about yourself while you wrote this book versus maybe some of those other books? This was such an interesting season of writing because it was it was during COVID that I wrote it. Um, so with mm. my second book, Native, Native released right as COVID hit. So so that excitement of the the release of of Native, my second book was kind of shadowed by the horror of COVID. Mm. And then I knew that I needed to move on to the next book. And I already had this, a lot of this book kind of in my heart and mind and was ready to move forward with it. And so then I ended up writing this book throughout this COVID time we've been living in. So at times that felt really difficult, you know, the brain fog and trying to kind of sift through any sort of meaning making in the world right now that mm. feels so terrible sometimes. So a lot of it was that the stress of that, but then this book really um, anchored me to, to hope. I think um, I read so many books to write this book because I wanted to include a variety of voices. You know, I always tell people that if you read my books, I hope that you don't stop with my book that you just read, but that you read all the books I've quoted within my book. Mm. It's meant to be, a bulletin board sort of, you know, where you can go and grab a different book, you know, that you can be inspired by the same people that inspire me. And I think that I learned about myself, how much I love interfaith work or solidarity work, or just learning from these deep wisdom wells of other writers. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I read another, I mean, that who we are as writers is we're also readers. So when I read another book that inspires me, it just makes me more excited about my own writing. And my second book native was so traumatic to write because it was kind of my story. It was a memoir of mm -hmm. my experiences within American Christianity as an indigenous young woman. And so this book was kind of like the what's next. And it was really good medicine for me to write it, you know, um, to be very careful with it, to try to, to do well by the audience that I knew was going to read it. And and I think that I, I'm really proud of it and, um, and that it just, yeah, it just deep, more deeply embedded the truth of, of who I am and, and the kind of voice I want to have in the world that I will try as hard as I can to be inclusive, that I will try as hard as I can to speak the truth and do it in mm -hmm. the way that fits me. And, and, and I'll fail, you know, we always will still fail at things, but it was really exciting to try to do that with this book. And I mm -hmm. think it set a tone for the rest of my work, I think, in a way. Uh, maybe it's this book. Maybe I just haven't read your other books as well. Or, or maybe I'm just like forgetting bits and pieces of them. But there's something about this book where, and you mentioned it earlier, where you're like, there's a fierceness to yourself mm -hmm. that I love. And I think it's great. And that really comes out in this book a lot. And also knowing your personality, like I think there's kind of this hesitation to like, I want to be able to speak the truth and it's important to speak the truth. And also like, I don't want to ruffle feathers. Like I have that personality too, where mm -hmm. uh, like, I'm fine. Like I'm glad to like say something ridiculous and stupid or, or even say something that I really truly believe in, like something really true that might 
actually ruffle some feathers. And also, I don't like to engage the conflict that that comes up from that. Right. Yeah. So like, you know, I'm fine with being like, oh, I'm a socialist. But I like if I and I'm fine with telling like someone like my parents who are very conservative that. But also the the thing I don't like is the conflict that could come up in that truth telling. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't yeah. really hesitate the truth telling. It's the conflict that comes from the truth telling. And I don't know, like maybe as an Enneagram four too, like you experienced that as well. Um, but it it's interesting because you still don't shy away from the truth telling, even though that conflict could come up from it. Yes. And it does come up from it. And I think I feel some of that in my speaking events and some of those kind of energy or, you know, through emails and things that we get. But I think that's why I always try to ground things back to like embodiment and storytelling and these kind of very basic things that draw us together as humans. It doesn't always work, but um, I would rather sort of come. It's like, it's like, you know, come in like a side door that people don't Mm. expect it. And then when you speak the truth, they're already, they're already so excited about the story that they're like, oh, and there's some truth. And I didn't know I was going to get hit with that. And they're just, mm-hmm. they're already just there. They're already there hanging out and, and taking part. Um, that's kind of just how I do things, which is why I also like insert poetry into my books. Cause I want people to just pause a second and like take a breath because I know it's hard. I know that hearing the truth about these things is difficult for people and there's going to be grief involved. Like I have, I have empathy for other humans who have to deal with these things and try to unlearn some of, I mean, it's hard, it's all really hard. So we have to be able to hold each other in it and um, without shying away from the truth, you know, absolutely, it is, it's difficult. All right. So you just mentioned before, you know, just mentioned about what you learned about yourself, but was there anything about maybe it was indigeneity that you learned or something like that came up in the research of the book. You know, I would imagine that to a certain degree, you're doing a certain level of research um, when you're, when you're writing a book like this, was there something that came up in that research where you're like, I didn't know that before. That's really interesting. Like that should be included in the book. So anything like that, that came up that you're like, that's a nice little nugget to put in. I think, um, yes, there are lots of nuggets. And I think that what, um, something I wanted to do with this book was um, expose people to worldwide indigeneity in Mm. in its many forms, because native was clearly about my journey as a Potawatomi woman. And it was clearly about America, you know, and this book, obviously I live in the U S so it's centered on that, but I wanted to include examples of resistance from around the world or, you know, examples of, indigenous peoples throughout history who have been fighting, you know, so talking about like indigenous farming practices in India and the the Indian farming protests, you know, like, I don't know, just um, trying to ground, ground people in the fact that there is worldwide indigenous wisdom. Um, Mm -hmm. I have been learning a lot about that. And I think that even for indigenous people, we can still be siloed sometimes. And, and there's so much that we need to learn from one another across the globe and throughout history, um, that there are indigenous people fighting for the land and the waters and, um, just their livelihood every, every single day against governments and corporations. Like this is not new and colonization is ongoing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, especially the, yeah, the, the, the Indian farming protests was, was one that really 
felt important for me to share, you know, that they're, they're literally trying to save their seeds, to save Mm -hmm. their foods, their crops from companies like Monsanto and, and so much of these, you know, agriculture systems that are not, not there to protect indigenous peoples or the land. And so Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was a really beautiful example. That was just one little thing that I wanted to make sure to include. I just finished reading Braiding Sweetgrass, which I think she's also yeah, a Potawatomi, she right? She is, yeah. So great. Um, one of the things that came up in that book that I just thought was a, such an incredible key insight is, you know, she talks about Homo sapiens. We've been around for less than a million years, like several hundred thousands of years. But a species like a tree been around for quite a lot, a lot longer. And so trees yeah. have much more of a wisdom of all the things that nature throws at it. And yep. so there it's, but to like think that even species outside of humans are, have a certain level of wisdom mm-hmm. and that we can, we can learn from them yep. and their wisdom is something that I think is just so powerful. And yep. I, I think that like that indigenous piece of wisdom that she had was a key insight for me uh, as I read her book. And so uh, I'm just really excited for us to chat through more about kind of the indigenous wisdom um, that you pull out uh, in this book. I just think it's really, really incredible. One of those pieces is obviously the title of the book is called Living Resistance. Uh, and so the book is about resistance. Can you talk yeah. about when, when you talk about resistance in this book, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a great question. I really like to take you know, terms or ideas that have become popular or have become really important and kind of tease them out or stretch them a little. And to me, this idea of resistance was one of those words. Obviously, there's the, you know, scientific definitions, um, but the the idea of pushing against something, right, um, mm. is what what I'm looking at. And so I take resistance to sort of mean the ways that we use our everyday life to push against what I'm calling the status quo of colonization of white supremacy. So whatever that toxic status quo is, um, how are we using our lives, our personal lives and our collective lives to push against, to resist that status quo. And then I also make an important note that resistance isn't always just what we're pushing against, but when we push against something, we're choosing something on the other side of it. We're choosing Mm. something else. So when we resist, what are we choosing? What what kind of world are we wanting to create when we resist these forces or these systems? And mm. I think that um, I really enjoyed diving into what that means. And of course, I talk about it through these lenses of care for ourselves and each other and Mother Earth. I think those mm-hmm. three lenses are sort of what the book came to be about, um, resisting through these ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you structure the book in these different realms, the personal realm yeah. being the first one. So I want to talk about that one first. I like that you begin there because it reminds me of something I've heard in abolitionist circles, which I don't know how much in the abolitionist world you are or not. But in the abolitionist circles, there's this phrase that I've heard that's something along the lines of abolition starts at home. Mm-hmm. So we can we can talk about abolishing the police or abolishing prisons. But what good is that if we still live a carceral life at home. Mm. 
right? Mm -hmm. So abolition starts at home. How you interact in your personal relationships is how yeah. you're going to interact when it comes to these bigger systems. So I like that you yeah. begin with the personal realm. Can you talk a little bit more about why you begin a book about resistance with the personal realm? Yeah. Yeah. Because it is based on that idea of to care for others, we have to care for ourselves. And and we hear these things a lot. And, and I think we probably hear it so much that it starts to sound like it's not true or that it's an empty, empty phrase, you know, but it really is true. I mean, if we don't even know how to love ourselves, if we haven't practiced presence or embodiment, you know, I have been, and I shared in the book, I've been and still am on a journey of embodiment and of care for myself. And, um, it makes it really difficult to do our work well in the world if we don't have some amount of care for ourselves, mm. you know? And so I write about like, I write about deconstruction. Of course, I write about the difference between self-love and self-care and what radical self-love is in this context. I write about um, loving our child selves well. I write about my struggles with anxiety. Um, there's a lot that goes into loving ourselves. And I don't know that we talk about it enough. I, I, I already know our systems aren't made for us to love ourselves well. You know, mm. our systems are not made for that. So how do we find ways to make space for that and to support each other in that as we do this work? I think that that's a really important question to ask. And so I, yeah, I definitely wanted to start the book with us focusing on ourselves a bit, not to stop there though, to continue you take care of yourself so that you can lean into community or you lean into the work you do, but you do it better whenever you are full, whenever you are mm -hmm. loved and cared for. What's been a practice for you that has helped you in that self-love, in that helping you feel full so that then you can also care for others? What's been a practice that's been really important for you? Uh, I would imagine folks that are listening are like, this all sounds really great, Caitlin, but also like, I would like to do that work too, not just hear about it. So yeah. What, yeah, what's been a practice that's been helpful for you that maybe you'd recommend to others to do? A few things. So finding sort of a, a grounding routine anywhere that you can. So mine is in the mornings because that's space that I have to do that. Um, I, you know, take my kids to school and then by myself or with my partner, we have a slow morning of having coffee together and I read for a little bit before I dive into my work because that helps me stay grounded to do the work well, um, to not burn out too quickly in my day. That's one thing. And then for me, um, movement. So getting out of my head and into my body because I'm a writer, like I live in my head and I'm an Enneagram 4. <laughs> so I live in my head all, all day, every day, you know? And so it is really, really important to, um, to practice movement and breathing. Like, I just think we forget to breathe sometimes and our systems can kind of go into fight or flight mode without us realizing it. So even just to walk outside, even just stepping away from a screen and um, refocusing on my body has been incredibly important for me. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I just went on a hike yesterday listening to an audiobook and it was a it was a brisk walk, but I woke up this morning and I'm like, I'm a little sore, which I'm I must be at that age now where walking makes me sore, which doesn't feel particularly uh, but you know, there there's a there's a nice thing about aging, I guess, but also yeah. like, that's one of the things I'm like, really at one point walking would not make me sore. <laughs> it was brisk though, so that's what counts. That's right. That's right. So 
in the chapter on the personal realm, so that first uh, kind of section of the book, yeah. you talk about embodiment as resistance. And mm -hmm. you've already mentioned embodiment a couple times here. I'm sure my listeners are already very annoyed with me about talking about embodiment, probably every episode ever since I've written my thesis. But I wrote my thesis recently about like an embodied theology, essentially. Mm. So what does embodied resistance look like to you? What I have realized embodiment this idea first of all i'm certainly not an expert on embodiment there are literal experts on embodiment and you should go read their books but um like dr hillary mcbride you know mm -hmm. read hillary's book but my body i have started listening to my body in recent years really because i spent so many years of my childhood and adolescence being dissociated from my body so a lot of trauma a lot of church trauma um there were just a lot of things in my my body you know, I had pain, I had things that were happening, and I didn't have words for them. And I didn't know it was trauma kind of showing itself to me. There mm -hmm. were a lot of ways that, that my anxiety and my stress levels levels were so high. And I, I didn't have answers, because I didn't recognize what was happening in my body. So embodiment has been really, really important for me. And it's, it'll be a lifelong journey. I think I want to point that out to everyone that resistance, embodiment, care, Solidarity, all these big words, these big ideas are lifelong practices. You know, it's it's a lifelong journey of being human that brings us to this. And embodiment has to be through action. Like like embodiment mm -hmm. has to be on purpose. You know, like we have to take the time to get out of this area and <laughs> drop into our bodies, into our hearts to check in and see how we're doing. And that's that's really difficult to do when we live in a society that is so heady, I guess, you know, and um, there is so much to think about and process and over process. So getting back into our bodies is really important. And I also recognize that that looks different for everyone. Obviously, all bodies are different and all minds mm -hmm. are different. And so we have to ask how that works best for us and what that might mean. One other thing that has meant a lot to me is rock climbing which my, my, our whole family started doing together last year. So we, we joined a, a local gym here in Philly and uh, we go climbing as a family. And it's one of the best, best ways for me to get out of my head and into my body lately. Mm -hmm. And I've really, um, either outside or at the gym, I've really loved that. And that's meant a lot to me. And I know it's helping on my resistance journey as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things I bring up in my thesis is the mind-body dualism that we see so ingrained in our society. And that, in order to, I think it's part. I think it's part of decolonization. But I do think that at the end of the day, if we're going to see the kind of liberation that we want to see in the world, we actually have to really get rid of this mind-body dualism. Yeah. And so, becoming embodied really is an act of resistance to the what I would argue is a sort of colonizing nature yes. of mind-body dualism. And so, um, you know, wh whether it's rock climbing, whether it's taking a hike, uh, you know, whatever your body needs to do and wants to do and is able to do, um, right. but all of those things that your body can do, wants to do, and needs to do, all of those things, I think, are just one small piece towards uh, a resistance to this colonizing nature of mind yes. body dualism. Yeah. And for those of us who grew up in Christian spaces, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist. So you're, well, girls, women's bodies were, all bodies were bad, 
slash didn't matter because we'll go to heaven eventually. But then on top of that, you know, being a young woman, mm-hmm. we had this awful power to tempt everyone around us and cause lust all, all over the place. So our bodies were like constantly just, we are judging ourselves for everything. And it was so much and it did, it cast this just shame over our bodies. And why would I have a relationship with this thing if it's bad and I'm told Mm -hmm. it's bad and I'm told it's bad all of Mm -hmm. my childhood and that it can't be trusted. And that, you know, like at some point there's so much unlearning and decolonizing we have to do Mm -hmm. to get to healing. One of the things that I found is that it's a, it's interesting. I wrote this thesis about embodiment and you've written this chapter uh, about embodiment because uh, it, it doesn't come naturally for me. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know about for you, but it doesn't necessarily come naturally for me, which is part of the reason why I wanted to write about it because it was going to force me into yes. getting into that space more often. But one of the reasons is I met with this Enneagram coach a number of years ago now, and she like did the little you know Enneagram diagram where it's the circle and then you get like the numbers around it and everything. And she points out, she's like, where do you see the four in, in relation to this circle? I'm like, well, it's at the bottom. And she was like, we're, and you know, there's like the different triads of the, the mind triad, the heart triad and the body triad. She's like, where do you see the body triad? And I'm like, oh, it's at the very top. She's like, do you see the, the four as at the very bottom and the, the, my, or the body triad is at the very top? Like it, that part is not going to be the most natural thing for you. Yeah. So whenever, and so she was like, I want you to start describing like some of the most transformative experiences in your life. And so I start telling her some of the things she's like, do you see a common thread between all these things? I'm like, oh, they're all like very embodied. They're all like very embodied experiences or like th- at least the way I describe them are very embodied. Yeah. And she was like, well, there might be a reason for that because it's not the most natural thing for you. But when you do have these embodied experiences, yeah. it, it's going to be transformative because yeah. It's the the point between a four and that that body triad is so uh, is so far from each other. So anyway, I don't know if that's a similar experience for yourself that. as a four, but anyway, yeah. I found that very interesting. Yeah, it is. That's actually really interesting, and it is true. I'm yeah, I'm the same way. That's so interesting. I'm gonna think about that more. Yeah, that's fascinating. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. Let's uh, let's move on to the communal realm. So we've talked about the personal realm. Let's move on to the communal realm. I'll just say, we can't do resistance alone, right? So I love that you bring up kinship uh, with the non-human world. Uh, I think that part in particular really in that communal uh, realm section really stood out to me. 
Can you talk more about kinship with the non-human world and why it's necessary for resistance? Yes. You know, I, my books are very um, um, cyclical and repetitive, and I, I do that on purpose. Um, it's kind of like, you know, if I point out these things enough, maybe we'll get it by the end, you know, um, yeah. and it's just, I'm okay with that, you know, kind of meeting these same moments in different ways throughout different chapters. And so connecting to Mother Earth or the creatures around us, all of those things. Sorry, my dog. My dog just walked in. I mean, I feel like this is a, a I very, know. I mean, this, this is a perfect this time. We're talking about non-human, the non-human world. That's so stupid. Let's, 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 my, uh, let's have your dog. Join. Reiner. Well, he won't, he won't leave me alone. So we're here now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I anyway, I, I had to keep touching on this, this aspect. Like our community is not just other people. It's also, you know, the creatures around us, the wisdom. Um, it's the the wisdom of trees, the wisdom of water, the wisdom of Mother Earth, uh, the wisdom of the land. That is all that's all our community. Like we can't get away mm. from that. And so indigenous people throughout history all over the world have been fighting for this relationship and have been modeling this relationship for so long. And And I think that it's just really important to ask why, why we need these relationships. And so, yeah, one of my favorite chapters that I wrote in the book was, you know, caring for the land as resistance and pointing out why that's important and why we need it. And, mm. and we do, our community isn't just the other people in our lives and anyone who has pets or has, you know, a garden or goes on walks and communes with nature or other creatures, you know, knows that. And so can we step back and just pay attention to that as we mm. go, you know? Are, are there any practices that you've done that help you connect with the non-human world where where it's you're able to develop a deeper relationship than, oh, that's a really pretty flower? A lot of times you hear like, you know, you people will go like on a retreat or something. And the reason why they go on a retreat is because they want to get into the beautiful outdoors or whatever. And like, that's great and fine. But also like these are like to get into a retreat or something that's a little disconnected from or quite a ways from a large city. Part of that reason, I think, is to actually develop deeper relationships with other species. Mm -hmm. Are there any sort of practices that help you engage in that kind of deeper relationship making with non-human, the non-human world? Yeah, I think there have been a few things throughout the years, obviously going on on walks. And I think it's good to go on walks where you don't take your phone and you don't listen to anything, but you listen mm. to the world around you and you just ask questions of the relationship. Something that I encourage people to do is to start a like letters to mother earth journal, where you actually start writing letters to, to mm. her as a being. And you, you ask what this relationship means and what it's meant to you and how it can be better. I think that that's a really beautiful and difficult thing for people to do. And then I, I do garden and it's funny cause we've, we've lived in Philadelphia now for two years. So I, uh, and in cities. And so I usually do container gardening and, and it's a challenge and it's been so beautiful to start my own seeds inside and see mm. what grows that relationship to, plants and and growing your own and growing your own seeds is so beautiful because it's so reciprocal mm. they're giving you life and you are trying to take care of them and listen to them and mm -hmm. that's 
that's just so beautiful to me. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've heard, I think it was like maybe a couple years ago now, but I heard somebody talk about they had a number of trees in their backyard and they named every tree. Mm. And just in the way that you would interact with your dog, what's your dog's name, by the way? Jupiter. Jupiter. Just like <laughs> you named Jupiter and that by naming Jupiter, you then have a deeper level of a relationship than yeah. if you then you trying to have a relationship with something that is not named. Yeah. By so by naming a tree in her backyard, she was able to have a deeper relationship with that tree. Uh, and so I think just even something as simple as naming a non-human species that you maybe interact with regularly, like a tree in your backyard, by naming it, I think that yeah. just adds to that level of intensity around a deeper relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're just um, again. Some of us who grew up in Christian spaces, we were taught that narrative of domination, which is not a narrative of relationship. Mm. And so, um, so I think Jupiter want, is wanting to be a lapdog. Oh, you have no idea why miners think they're tiny. Um, I have two giant containers in front of my office door to keep him out, and he's still just push, walks push right over through it. them so yeah we are taught we're we're just taught domination we're taught humans are the most powerful we know the best we know the most we're the best right. you know why would we why would we um humble ourselves and listen to any other creature besides you know ourselves like why would we do that and there's just so much unlearning to do you know mm -hmm. to be in these relationships and it just goes back to the braiding sweetgrass point of yeah, we've yep. got these large brains. We've got these great nerve, central nervous systems that are quite different than a lot of other species. But also trees have been around for a lot longer and probably have more wisdom in that regard. Yeah, <laughs> and their roots talk to each other. And, you know, there's right. just so much we have no idea. Right, totally. We also can't do resistance without those who came before us. And so you kind of, you, you've got the ancestral realm uh, mm -hmm. that you talk about. Can you talk about why that realm is so important to resistance? And, you know, I, I think about someone like myself who grew up very much in a white world and in a world of white supremacy where I, besides like maybe my grandparents, I was not connected really whatsoever with my ancestral realm other than maybe knowing some history, but yeah. certainly did not have like any practices, any way of engaging the ancestral realm where they have wisdom to uh, offer me or something like that. Did not grow up in a world like that. So can right. you talk about why that ancestral realm is so important um, when it comes to resistance? Yeah, the ancestral realm is is um, complex because first it seems kind of vague and difficult. It's not super tangible for some people, and I know they'll they mm. will struggle with that. Then the other thing is that in a lot of ways we do have this obsession with ancestry and DNA right now and you know these mm -hmm. kinds of things so I knew I knew it would be a difficult uh, thing to write on and trying to frame it in a way that's helpful uh, for everybody no matter who you are and I think that the best way for for me to do that is to just remind us of this idea of the seven generations that that there were seven generations before us who prepared us for the life we live today mm. and there are seven generations who will come after us and the life that we live today is going to give them or not give them the tools that they need to live a good life. And mm. so we kind of live in that liminal space between those who came before and those who come after. And I think that part of our resistance is recognizing that our, our daily work is somehow affecting 
those who came before and those who will come after while it's changing us. And I think that's just a really beautiful kind of communal way of seeing things because some of us maybe have ancestors who were totally shitty and we have to deal with that. You know, like Mm -hmm. we can't ignore it. We know it happened. Maybe we don't know how to fix it. Well, how can we make our lives about the work of resistance in a way that counters those narratives or counters what happened? Like, how can we, we can't change the past, you know, but we can um, pay attention and we can speak into some of that and ask what comes next and pay attention to that as well. Yeah. How do you think through that for the part of our ancestry that is kind of shitty? Like, Growing up in that white world and also yeah. having a lot of white ancestry, there's parts of it where I'm like, they're actually part of the reason why we've gotten ourselves into this mess. For or sure. Like why we're in this mess, right? For sure. Like, how do I have that connection with that ancestral realm, uh, wh- knowing that a large majority of it for me is going to be pretty shitty? Yes. Uh, so I like, and I don't know like what your relationship. Obviously, you've got your indigenous relationship mm-hmm. uh, or your indigenous ancestry, mm-hmm. but like, I- I'm just. Like, what would you offer or what would you recommend to people who do have ancestry that is actually largely shitty? And how should they what what would you recommend how they should relate to that kind of ancestry? I mean, I think it's I think that part of the process is being okay with the grief and the and the Mm. anger maybe that comes with that, Uh, you know, and and um, like many things when we fall into like the the mode of shame it kind of shuts everything down and we can't get the work done like we can't lean into the work of resistance so um stepping into the truth of who those people were and you know the ways that they did or didn't do what was right or resist the status quos of their time um we can be honest about that without shaming ourselves so that we can Mm. stay active in doing the work that needs to be done. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Like be Mm -hmm. just being honest about it. Like Mm -hmm. I know I have ancestors who are shitty and, and I have to, I have to deal with that on both sides of my family. I have to deal with what that means. And I write about some of that, this experience during a meditation of seeing, like seeing some of my ancestors and them inviting me into this work felt to me like they were saying, you know, we've gotten it really wrong and we've also done okay, but we've also done it really wrong and we Mm -hmm. need you to be part of this. And Mm -hmm. again, I know that sounds really abstract for a lot of people. It's not like you need to name each of every ancestor you've ever had and know exactly what they did or didn't do, but there's work to be done today. And we have to trust that even the grief, the unpacking of that, challenging these status quos, that all of that has to also be ancestral work. I mean, Mm -hmm. I want to believe that. I want to believe that the beautiful work of resistance we do will affect those who came before and those who come after. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, we're going to become ancestors. And so what's like, what's the world that we want to leave with that those, the futures that come after us are like, yep, I'm, I'm proud of what my ancestors did because they undid some of this the other shit that their yeah. ancestors did. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, to, to leave the world a better place so that uh, those who come after us are able to say, you know what, th- th- these, these are ancestors who are worth connecting with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You finish up the book by talking about the uh, uh, integral realm, um, or am I, 
I always feel like I'm saying that. Integral or integral? Integral. I don't know. Integral. Either one. Integral. I like integral better. So. Uh, but yeah, you finished up the t- uh, the book talking about the integral realm. Can you talk more about what you m- mean by the integral realm? I was a little confused by that. So I'm just curious what you mean by the integral realm and why yeah. is it necessary for resistance? So the that last realm, the integral realm is this, you know, it's the season of autumn. It's it's uh, your shkode or your fire. And so this mm. is like integral as in integrate, right? We're integrating everything we're integrating Mm. the work that we've done in all these other realms not that they're they're supposed to be done like in a linear way we're living in all the realms all the time is Mm. is the importance of that um how are we taking these lessons that we're learning these embodiments we're practicing how are we taking that resistance and connecting it back to our hearts back to our souls back to who we are and that's where i talk about like prayer and dreaming and how resistance is lifelong. So those are kind of like it for me in my life. Some of those things just hit at the core of who I am. Like they're, they're the things I hold at the center of me. These Mm. questions of what prayer is, these questions of what dreaming might be. And so I wanted to try to give language to that. What is that? The core of who we are. And since autumn is the time of harvest, it's like, we're gathering in, right? We're gathering in all of these things that we've been trying to practice. And we're, it's like, we're letting them seep deeper into our bodies and into our spirits so that we can then start all over again, basically. And we just keep continuing the cycles of resistance. Does that help? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that you're, yeah, you're connecting all of these, um, that they're not some disconnect. The, yeah. the previous three realms aren't disconnected from one another. Right. Um, but that, you know, their integration of it is yeah. what's key. Uh, and, you know, I think that's when we're really going to start to see the resistance that is necessary in the world. Um, but I also love the point that you bring out that this is going to be lifelong. <laughs> yes. We're not going to be able to flip a, sh- a switch one day and say, you know what, resistance has now happened. Yes. This is a really a practice. Uh, the the practice, the the ongoingness of resistance is what is key to all of this. And understanding that way, uh, I think the the understanding of it that way, first off, gives us uh, the hope that at some point it will happen, but we don't have this like false hope that at some day it's going to happen in our lifetime or something. We don't have to That's have that true. false hope. And also, I think the fact that it's this ongoingness helps people realize they don't have to be perfect at this. Yes. There's going to be days yes. where we're going to slip up in this resistance. There's going to be days where we're, we're going to make the mistake. And yet, because it's lifelong, means that you can you can uh, repent of that or you can yes. apologize for that and go on to Keep do better going. work uh, exactly. of resistance later on. So it, it frees us up in that way. Frees us up from the mm-hmm. false hope that it will happen immediately mm-hmm. like tomorrow. And it yep. frees us up from feeling like we have to be perfect at this. Yes, exactly. And that's why I wanted to write about it and end the book with that because we are also in a society where we want to just put band-aids on things. Like we just want to Mm -hmm. fix, of course we do. Like it's good to want to fix problems, but if we have generations of, you know, colonialism and white supremacy and all these other problems that have created the status quo we live in, reading two books is not going to fix it. But right. please, please read the books, though, you know, but right. like uh, social media and some of our our resistance circles have made people think that that they have to heal it all and they have to fix themselves and do all of the work really quickly. Mm-hmm. And all that does is lead us into deeper burnout <laughs> and shame sometimes because people don't 
get the result they think that they should have gotten. And so mm-hmm. what you're saying is exactly right. Our, you know, the kids and grandkids, the future generations may start to see some of the fruit of what we're doing, but we mm-hmm. may not see it and we have to be okay with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have to feel the freedom of that. Well, it kind of goes back to the seven generations. It may take mm-hmm. seven generations. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Exactly. It's not that things will be perfect by seven generations. It's just that it actually might take that many generations to start to undo just even a little bit of this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's hard to believe, you know, as, as much as, uh, as quick as colonial colonialism absolutely screwed up a lot of the world it also is going to take even probably longer just well to yeah because it's ongoing i mean it's you know so it's high, kind of hard to stop a thing that's still rolling you know like it's still happening so mm-hmm. yeah we have yes. to be aware of that yeah i mean a, a forest fire can burn down a forest within you know moments yeah and it's going to take probably hundreds of years for that forest yeah. to grow back as it was before the fo- the fire yeah Right. Just sort of like that. It just takes a long time. Uh, But it's the work that's uh, necessary. Uh, The tagline of my podcast is exploring, inspiring and liberating theologies. How do you hope the readers of Living Resistance are inspired and liberated by the book? Hmm. You know, my hope for my books, but especially this one was that was that people could be challenged, but also find my words to be a safe place to just process these things, especially for people from marginalized or oppressed identities, no matter what that is, I want my words to be, you know, a balm or a a safe, a Mm. safe place for them. Um, Because I meet a lot of people who are struggling with these same things um, from different identities and, and struggling with how we do this work well and take care of ourselves well. And, um, and so that's, that's really important to me. I hope that it, I hope it, it reminds people that the work that we do on the personal level, the, the micro is really important. And the work that we do on the macro level is also really important and everything in between, you know, that we, we need to be part of changing systems, but we can also be part of just changing the way we think. And that spreads to our families and our friends and our communities. And that's how we, that's also how we change things. Mm-hmm. So I hope people feel that in this book. Absolutely. Uh, last question, Caitlin, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? I think uh, the best way is um, Instagram is where I'm at most as far as social media. And then uh, the Liminality Journal is my Substack, And that would mm. be, that's where you'll find more information on what's happening and, you know, speaking events and traveling and then just essays and poetry. It's a really fun, fun community of people. So I think those those two are are some of the best places to find me. Lovely. And where would you recommend people to get the book? Well, of course, you know, support your local local bookshops as best you can. Um, and if you're not able to do that, then get it anywhere. But you can find a bunch of links on my website, CaitlinCurtis.com. There's um, a lot of different possibilities for ways you can order it. Lovely, lovely. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for chatting more about the book. Again, thank you. I feel like every book gets a little bit better with, with you. you. It's <laughs> so great. So thank you so much for writing it and chatting a little bit more about it. Thank you. If you'd like to connect with Caitlin and her work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. 
If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. 